welcome to the Relief Teachers podcast brought to you by Tradewind Australia. My name's Ian McNally and this podcast is a recording from a live webinar in January 2021 with my colleagues and former principals Billy Green and Terry Toomey. In this webinar, we covered some of the basics that you need to teach in a specialist school. I started this webinar by asking Terry Toomey, if you've never worked in a specialist school before, why should you consider the opportunity to work in a specialist environment? Well, look, I think it's probably the best form of professional learning you would ever undertake. You know, a, a, real, a real challenge and also an appreciation of the work we do in schools. Um, it's an absolute eye-opener for me, the, uh, the time I've been able to spend in special schools just with colleagues. Yeah, it certainly in, increased my learning. So I think also, Ian, just in terms of uh, the opportunity to broaden your own skill set, I think um, add another string to your bow, another environment in which perhaps you're capable of working in that you you didn't realise. But I think if you've got the opportunity to spend any time in a special setting, um, very, very worthwhile. I kind of wish that mainstream schools and mainstream teachers would take much more notice of the practice in specialist environments, particularly in terms of how student-focused it is about teaching students at their point of need. What should you be looking for, Terry, if you're working in a specialist environment? Well, I think um, more so than anywhere else, it's a, it's about relationships, I think, on every level. I think the relationships that you need to build with everybody that you're working in, with obviously the students, but also I think just the, the relationships that you'll observe uh, between the staff that work there, both the teaching staff and um, the educational support staff are absolutely absolutely vital in terms of an environment uh, like this. I um, I marvelled at the team approach at the special schools um, that, that that I visited, and the I think um, the care and duty of care shown to the uh, young people that that attend there, and I think just it it do us all a lot of good from mainstream schools to spend a little more time. Uh, in these settings and just uh, get a real appreciation for the challenges that uh, a lot of people, students and staff deal with. There's, there's a, just over 90 um, specialist schools in Victoria. Um, and we'll talk about some of the reasons why um, they might have some logistical considerations that are mainstream doesn't because of that number. But every student in the school will have an individual learning plan. They'll come from a whole range of different backgrounds and circumstances. They'll generally have an IQ in the range of 50 to 70. And they'll have a range of academic abilities and social abilities as well. So some of the specialist schools that you might go into will look completely mainstream in every aspect. Um, it might just be that only when you start to teach that you realize that there might be some um, you know, difference in the way that you have to pitch the lesson or the way that you have to pitch your approach. Terry, one of the things uh, that teachers worry about is that if they've had all of their experience in mainstream, that they won't be allowed to teach in specialist schools. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, most of the staff there probably have done some um, sort of you know 
further training in, in, in special ed, but there's certainly nothing stopping you from um, spending time in, in a special school and as CRT, I think it's a highly worthwhile experience. And look, a number of people I know um, have volunteered in special schools, have worked in special schools as an educational support staff member initially, and then ultimately have, have come on board as a teacher. Most of the people though, uh, over time, um, would all, also have um, accessed um, you know, more formal training in special education. If you've never te taught in a uh, special school environment or a specialist environment, uh, you have very little experience working with students who have individual needs. Uh, why would you be considered for a day's teaching or longer at a special school, Billy? Well, when I did the research uh, for this work, because my background, like um, yours and Terry's, not, not in specialist schools, but I've done some work and some of my more endearing stories come from the time I did work in specialist schools too. Uh, it's a bit like we were talking this morning about working in, you know, lower primary and uh, prep. You know, it, it does require a certain skill level and it certainly does, it requires a, a heightened sort of level of teaching ability. But one of the interesting things that I found when I went out into the specialist environment, uh, I found that a lot of the teachers weren't uh, specialist trained, if you like, they hadn't done the, the final year of training that you do to pick up that, uh, oh, it used to be a diploma in uh, special, special education. Ed, yeah. But um, many of them had come from, I guess, what you might call mainstream schools, had done short periods of time in special schools, whether as a reliever or picked up some short-term contract work there and found that they absolutely loved it. In fact, one of the schools that I visited, um, the person who was actually a, um, who was the assistant principal of that school, she had come from a mainstream background, had never imagined that she would end up in a specialist uh, environment and, um, and really loved the opportunity and has remained there and has done really well in that environment. So I, I think that, again, um, and I, I don't want to draw too many parallels between the, the two, but certain people are drawn to certain levels or certain uh, in schools and certain even subject areas, if you like, and will have a particular affinity and a particular talent in an area. And you might find uh, that that is uh, an area that you really love working in the specialist school. So the specialist schools are more than happy to have people along. In fact, I, I can talk to some of the issues that they raised with me, they'd like me to raise with you guys around who should go there and what they should expect. But that they're more than happy to help you out. And one thing I would say, Terry and Ian, without a doubt, of all the school environments that I've been in, you won't walk into an environment that's more helpful and more supportive as a CRT than into a specialist school. They realise that some of the challenges there are, are real for you when, you when you've not been there and you don't have a lot of experience and they put in a lot of support and they are a you know, really great bunch of people to work with. So if you are sitting there thinking, oh, look, I'm not quite sure, maybe I'd give it a go, you know, might just give me a few extra days a week's work, I would definitely give it a go. There's absolutely no harm to be done. If you don't like it, that's fine. But I think most people who, go, who jump into that specialist environment uh, tend to really enjoy it and they do go back. Yeah, look, Billy, I think that's a great point because I think those special schools, they love the continuity. When they strike the right people, they just like uh, getting them back, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, and, and the one thing that I suppose stuck out in my work uh, when I did the research on this, and as I said, I spent some time, I think the longest period I spent there, I think I spent a six-week period there uh, in a specialist school. 
The thing that struck me most when I was doing the research uh, around this was I turned up to one of the special schools and it wasn't last year, it was before, um, uh, before COVID. Um, and it was school photo day. And I couldn't help but think how many parallels and how many consistencies there are. So here I was in a special school and like a lot of people, I guess you're drawn to what's different about being in a special school to a mainstream school. What am I going to pick up? How can I compare and contrast? But what I was actually drawn to was the similarity. And that is, and I'm sure it'd be the same in a high school, photo day is always an exciting, strange day, trying to get the kids in line from shortest to smallest, trying to get them all to look at the front, um, trying to get them all to smile at the one time. And I, it just struck me, there is so much that is so similar. And I thought, you know, when the parents of these kids get the photos in a couple of weeks' time or a month or so's time, they're going to be just as excited as the parents that went to Terry's school, as the parents that uh, the kids went to the school where I was at. This, And it just made me think, you know, sometimes we look for too much difference when there's actually a lot of similarity, um, you know, around the kids, around the parents, around what the staff are trying to achieve. And, and that was the biggest thing that I came away um, from my visits to a number of specialist schools, that there's a lot of things that are similar. If you're a teacher and you like to teach, whether you're teaching year 12 or whether you're teaching prep or you're, whether you're working in a specialist school, it is still teaching. It, as Terry said, it is still very much about relationships. I think that's one of the things that I noticed when I've worked in specialist schools and had placements there, uh, both in the UK and here, is the focus from the teachers is very much on what the student can do, not what they can't. And I found that um, so very challenging to um, to my teaching practice because by your nature, if, I, if I'm teaching grade six and I get uh, they write a, a story, then when I'm reading that, all I'm doing is looking for their next areas of development. So I'm in, a, in essence looking for all the things they've done wrong or haven't done yet. And it's such a, a, a mind shift and a challenge for, for me as a mainstream trained teacher to actually forget about that, focus on what the student can do and then build upon that. And that, that was very formative for me. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. And in fact, um, I actually spent some time in one of the, uh, well, all sorts of grades, but one of the younger grades. That's just to bring up, let's talk about a couple of things that are different. They tend not to have the prep one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, up to 12. They lump them into sort of like juniors, middles, seniors. There's all sorts of different variations, but that's another thing. You're actually teaching some multi-age grades. Um, but yeah, the focus is very much on what they can do. And I, I came across this little fella uh, and he was as sharp as a tack and I could not, I, I just couldn't work out for a moment what he was doing there um, because he seemed to be across everything. And it wasn't until I asked him that he, his name that he um, pointed to me and dragged me over to where his locker was and pointed to his locker on, on um, his name on his locker. And he just didn't have any expressive language. So his capacity, he just didn't, wasn't able to express himself at all. He had pretty well no verbal uh, communication at all. But uh, to look at him in, an, in a, any sort of situation, he was as sharp as a tack and bright as, and you could not. So yeah, I, you start again to focus on what they can do. Uh, and, you know, the fact that I couldn't, I didn't know that he didn't have any verbal language I couldn't see that anything that he couldn't do. So I, I think it's a great 
way to it's a, if nothing else if you spend a day in a specialist school it'll help you reflect on how you look at classrooms and how you look at kids uh, we've had a couple of really good questions uh, which i think we can address now because i think they're definitely relevant to what we're talking about is Yvette's asked about the situation with the curriculum in specialist schools i mean are the subjects offered in the same way do they drive curriculum in the same manner uh, uh, of which they uh, do in a mainstream school, Billy? No, they don't. So typically what you're working with in terms of uh, curriculum, well, first of all, with, with the students, the, the focus there, most of the kids, and we're not talking about the high um, needs developments, special development schools, we're talking about um, your specialist schools, which is more or less the ones that you'll come across. And in some of those others where the kids that have got, you know, really specific and quite often physical as well as intellectual needs, there's not often that you'll pick up those as a CRT because they do require specific skills. So we're talking about a general sort of specialist school. The IQ that the kids will have in those schools is somewhere between 50 and 70. And Terry, you would know from your work, even in high schools, that a lot of kids will do a relatively normal primary school but it's at that transition moment when they've got to uh, jump into the secondary area that that it does get a lot more challenging. And there's, that's when there's more of those kids in uh, specialist schools, isn't there? Uh, look, absolutely. And I think they'll go through some part of, you know, extensive uh, assessment process, Billy. But yeah, um, and, and that can be a difficult uh, or challenging decision for parents and families to make too in terms of what setting their you know, child is best placed. Yeah, but going back to the curriculum and what they focus on there, or first of all, in terms of level, and we don't want to, you know, make it uh, too um, set, but you won't get much above what you might call grade four level uh, curriculum in a specialist school. There may be some kids in in the environment that might have uh, particular uh, talents and skills in a certain area that they'll be able to develop, but typically the focus is anywhere from about grade four level um down they have a different sort of way of looking at their curriculum um they did have a, a program called ables a-b-l-e-s which you can uh, look up and google that is it's a very specific sort of program and, and maps out the uh, the steps that they move through in literacy and numeracy and and every kid as you said will have a their own learning plan and work um and works and work around that um, there is very much a strong emphasis on literacy and numeracy, and it's very much a strong emphasis on practical literacy and numeracy. So some of the more um, uh, or the less applied, the more, you know, maths that is less day-to-day, uh, -day, they won't tackle. Uh, like you're not likely to turn up there and to be doing, you know, um, degrees, um, measuring angles and, you know, talking about, you know, how many degrees there are in triangles and things like that. That's not going to happen. But you'll definitely do things around days of the week and time uh, and counting and money and those very, very practical things that you would be doing uh, that people will need as, as sort of survival skills. And similarly around reading, you know, they're not necessarily going to be reading lots of uh, novels, but lots of practical te texts uh, lots of signs, uh, those sorts of things. So it's very much that the the um, the uh, curriculum, the emphasis is on practical day-to-day -day stuff, a lot around communication and a lot around even practical experiences such as art and music and uh, infotech and uh, phys ed, of course, and camps and cooking and, and still life skills, not perhaps as much as they used to do on the life skills, but, you know, domestic activities, 
uh, community activities, getting out and working in the community, and even still travel training activities. So it's quite a difference. It's very varied. As you can imagine, they don't spend like um, long, long, long periods of time on, on one activity. So the curriculum, they, they change things around. There's lots of breaks. There's lots of downtimes. There's lots of quietening downtimes. But yeah, so the curriculum level is not uh, much past grade four in most of the areas. Trin's also asked just back to that point as well, just about, you know, teaching core disciplines and so on. I mean, because they, they look at curriculum in a different way in uh, specialist schools, it doesn't mean there is no curriculum. It's not uh, that the curriculum is crucial uh, to their planning and to um, the areas, the points and the milestones that students make an awful lot of planning involved, an awful lot of communication with parents and with outside agencies as well with students. That is very a day-to-day part of that job, isn't it? That you, you are working with multiple agencies, you are working with all different um, people and added to that, you've got other adults in the room to manage as well because uh, specialist schools have an enormous amount of educational support as compared with the mainstream. Yeah, and like, the knowledge, yeah. Billy, that the educational support staff have of, of the students should not be underestimated. And I think uh, you know, they yeah. are key players for teachers uh, in this space. So if you're going to work in that environment as a CRT, then that relationship you've got with the aides uh, will be absolutely critical. And the other thing that I observed and just learned through sitting in at meetings, just the role parents have as advocates uh, for, you know, students in, in this environment. So we talked in other sessions about our ability to work with parents and that sort of thing. And I think in this particular sector, absolutely critical. And there's a, um, a whole range of people, support people around each particular student. Oh, yeah. Look, the other thing that, you know, um, I guess surprised me a little bit, Ian, and I'm not sure it happens in every special school, but every kid, uh, and they were well trained in this. In fact, they were better trained in this than any of the kids I'd taught in mainstream schools. Every kid had their uh, take-home book, uh, which was written in pretty well every day and would be returned to the school. uh, So it would go home every night and would return to the school in the morning. So the teacher was always informing the parents about what was going on Admittedly, the you know the class sizes are much smaller, so you can afford to do that. Um, but if there are any issues that came up at home as well, and you've got to remember, a lot of kids uh, are on medication, so there's a lot of um, uh, swapping of information around that. Uh, as Terry mentioned, you've got an enormous amount of uh, what you might call um, supplementary, complementary staff that support you know from occupational therapists to even. Uh, you know, speech therapists, uh, hearing, uh, art therapists, there's a whole range of different um, people that are there to uh, help the kids. And the other thing that's really interesting, or two other things that are interesting in terms of home life, it's not uncommon to have uh, brothers and sisters that may be in the in the specialist school. You may have a, a family who's actually disadvantaged themselves through intellectual disability. So mum and dad may have some of those issues as well. But the other thing is, unlike most schools in Victoria, as opposed to some of the select entry schools and whatever, most of the kids don't live in the area because, um, you know, you may have one specialist school, let's say at, um, I'll say the one from Nelson Park I know in Geelong, for example, that's in um, just as you come in off the Ballarat Highway there. But the kids who attend Nelson Park can uh, come from as far away as Bannockburn, Anglesey, or um, even uh, perhaps even as far up as Laverton. Uh, so they are being bussed in 
well, certainly as far as Lara, they're, they're being bust in and then they bust out at the end of the day. So you've got a, a wide sort of uh, catchment area for the schools. So you don't always see the parents that often. So they have to keep in touch uh, regularly, as I said, by these communication books or by phone. So it's quite a, a different setup and it's very much a um, welfare is, is right to the fore. And it might be the case uh, if you're teaching in a school or working as a teaching assistant, the logistics sides of things like medications, uh, it's generally really well organized and really well done. And generally, if you're visiting a school as a relief teacher or an aide, the the responsibility won't be on your head day one, generally speaking. Um, but it's definitely worth put, putting it in your mind that you know it's pretty crucial that you're on time. Sometimes at 2.30, the buses start to pick students up how that's organized, the logistics behind it, following protocol, all of those considerations that you have to really think about at the start of your day and start asking questions pretty quickly <laughs> if, if that information isn't given to you. Yeah, you can never be too early. And I think uh, in, if you're going to work a day for the first time at a special school and you need to be able to you know, ask that question, what do I need to know? And you need to have plenty of time to take on board, uh, you know, the response you get. Well, just take, I'll give you an example of that, Ian. So when I went to one of the specialist schools that was more or less uh, a, a school that was devoted to uh, students uh, with autism, uh, just even things like um, closing the gates behind you. So when you go there, they take you through a relatively comprehensive induction program because there are some health and safety issues there for you and there are some real health and safety issues there for the kids so one of the things that might be a trigger for some of the kids in the classroom might be really bright lights or loud sounds so quite often they would you would walk into the classroom and your first thing you might do is think oh, i better put those blinds up you know like you might do that in the mainstream school no the blinds are down for a reason because the light is a trigger for some kids so you don't put the blinds up and they'll, they'll talk to you through that. You'll often have um, those safety gates with the latches at the top so that um, the kids, particularly the little kids, don't just wander out because if they do have the opportunity to wander out, you know, and they, a lot of those kids will wander. So there's a whole range of different uh, protocols and behaviours and routines, and I'll come back to that word routines because that's important, that you do have to be uh, across and the schools are fantastic in helping you out as far as routines goes quite often they have quite um comprehensive reward systems if you like and and those those routines are not ones that they want to change in fact the kids don't appreciate change much at all so while you might walk into a you know the average sort of grade four or five and um, the kids might be used to a, a table system or a, 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 what are you, a house system or whatever. And you can say, oh, look, today I'm going to change it a little bit. I'm going to do it this way. They'll accommodate that. In a specialist school, they don't accommodate. They won't know what you're trying to achieve. So if they want you to continue to reward the kids in a certain way, they'll explain that to you. There might be a colour-coded system. Uh, the, one of the schools I went to had a, um, for example, each kid, they went out to recess to keep them in the right area and again so they didn't wander into the wrong areas and get hurt they would have a colored wristband on and that meant if you were yellow you played in the yellow area and that was identified by yellow markers around the place and that was your play area for that day 
And if you've got a green one the next day, you go and play. So there's a whole range of different protocols and things that they'll have in school to help the kids, uh, keep the kids safe. And you need to be there and you need to be across those. And it's not scoped there to make your own changes and say, oh, look, I'll, oh, don't worry what band you got on today. You can go and play wherever you like. Well, you can't. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And, and also on that issue as well about play and moving around, the pace of teaching is very different in a specialist environment, isn't it? Almost every class I went into uh, after recess, they wouldn't come in. In the mainstream, right, uh uh-uh. Quick, get in. Right, okay, get started. We've got to get. We've got to get through this. We've only got an hour and a half to get all this stuff done. That's not the approach at all. What they would do, they stick very much to the routines. And one of the reasons that they stick to the routines is particularly for kids who on autism spectrum, they may be highly structured, and you, you don't alter that structure. If they come in from uh, recess, they need to do the same thing each day. You need to keep those routines going, otherwise it can act for a, a trigger for their behaviour. But quite often, what the kids would come in and do, they would come in from play, and they would sit down with a book or in a quiet spot on their own and the teacher, some did, some didn't, some would read a story, some would play music and that might go on for 10 or 15 minutes till everyone was very quiet, very settled, uh, very composed. And it was only at that point that you might start to do something in terms of teaching, which wouldn't go for a particularly long time. They would then do their activity. Then it might be a break, bring them back and then have another, let's gather our thoughts, let's quieten down, let's have a quiet time here. And then you'd start again because too much uh, stimulation and activity at, that, at the wrong time, you're not going to be able to teach them anyway. So again, they'll help you out with all that. And as Terry said before, the aids that are in the room, are, they are absolutely invaluable. They're invaluable in any classroom that you go into, but in a specialist school, you, you would struggle to get through a day successfully without them helping you out. Yeah, look, Billy, I, I would echo that. Look, I, for me, the big change and challenge was moving from a class focus, which coming from mainstream background and going in and observing, to you know a more specific child focus. And I think working with a smaller group, obviously, but just having the skills to take advantage of the knowledge that the aides have in relation to the young people that you're working with, I think that is a key thing for the teacher. Um, feel free to rely on those aids uh, because they'll have um, enormous wealth of relevant information in terms of those students. I think listening is is such a critical part of, of this process, uh, being new to specialist school. Listen to the students, listen to where they need help, follow their guidance and yet yeah, the aides and senior leadership in the schools. And one thing that strikes me, and I'm sure this is your experience as well, is that when you go in that, I mean, the staff are, are so competent. They're so on to it. They, and they, because partly because they have to be, um, but they are just uh, brilliant. Um, we've had a good question, uh, which might help us lead into some of the specifics around classroom management, assessments and things, and how different that might look in a specialist classroom. But Vets just asked about what type of uh, starter activities might you do as a CRT? Uh, to kind of find your feet and get a feel for the class. Any suggestions there, Billy? Yeah, one of the things, first of all, see if you can find out from the aides or from the um, uh, the, the, the office or it might be in the doc- documents that they hold, what are the routines that they start with every day? So what, what do you do when you first come in? What do you do after recess? 
What do you do after lunch? They will have patterns and routines, and this does lead into the classroom management. Each of the classes will have uh, consistent structures that they follow all the time. And it may be that they all come in in the morning for a start. And unlike in a, um, a, you know, a mainstream school where you might get under work pretty well, they may have uh, a quiet reading time. And then they might have a sharing time. Then you might have a, uh, a discussion time. And you might think, well, gee, we're not really doing much. But part of the, the, what you've got to understand there is so much of the learning that goes on in specialist schools is around just talking and communication and repetition and routines. So you so try to find out what those things are. And it might just be, you know, I, I remember once I went in there and the first thing they said, oh, every time somebody new comes in here, we like to find out a little bit about them. So I sat at the front of the room and I think there's a, a semicircle of about 10 or 15 kids and they all got to ask me a question, right? Now, don't be intimidated by that. I mean, the questions were, what's your favourite colour? What's your favourite food? What's your favourite pet? So that might be the best way to start. You know, tell a little bit about yourself. Uh, you might say, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. I'd like you to tell me in just in one sentence or one word something about you or talk about what they did the, yesterday or something like that. So you don't, the concepts can be quite simple uh, to get things started. What you're trying to do, though, and I've, I've forgotten the lady or the person's name who asked the question, but, again, it's very much about building that relationship. So it's that very first um, how would you build a relationship with this child who has special needs that you don't know? Well, the way is to tell them a little bit about you, get them to tell um, a little bit about them. And it doesn't matter if it gets to court to 10 and you haven't really done anything. That's okay. And then say, right now, we think what might, we might do is we might write a little story or we'll, or we're going to um, be, we're going to be doing making our lunch today. Let's have a think about all the things that we need. And you go through that process. They, they will have the work there to help you out. Um, but, yeah, I think don't get rushed and, and, uh, and flustered about what you've got to get through. There's less emphasis on that and more emphasis on engaging, keeping them on track, uh, not breaking routines and not uh, putting them into situations where they're overly challenged and then they're going to... Um, I guess, well, fail in a sense. I found that the aids were all over the routine. So yeah. when you're in their early days, don't be afraid to be asking them. I know that's, you know, that might be different from people who are used to working in more mainstream situations where they feel, you know, they're directing traffic. But initially in these environments, uh, utilise their skill sets because it's invaluable. Yeah. And don't be afraid of like in other schools, you you might not even ask what's the routine because mm -hmm. I'll do my own routine or whatever. But it's really important in special schools, special schools to ask, you know, how do they start? What do they do? It Just even to the terms of um, one of the first things you'll need to do is to read the books they bring in. Right. And if the teacher I'll give you an example. If the teacher normally takes the books and, I, and say uh, that Terry walks in and says, here's my book. And they'll be a bit nervous anyway, but if they here's my book and you grab the book and put it on the table, but what normally happens is the teacher grabs the book and says, thanks, Terry, and opens it up and has a quick look at it. Terry will be wondering, what have I done? Why has that gone wrong? The teacher normally looks at my book. So you've got to try to pick up on those routines and find out all those things. So 
you can even ask, so do the kids have a take-home book? Will they bring something in? What would you like me to do? Try to ask all those questions that you would otherwise think, oh, this is too silly to ask. It's not silly at all. Keep the routines the same. Keep the kids as settled as much as you can. And in the end, don't get too worried about um, how much you've taught them. Don't sort of tally it up, how much have I taught today? It's how much did you enjoy your day? And Because uh, it's really only your first or second day there, so don't get too worried about it. How much did I enjoy it? How much did it look like their normal day? Were the kids happy? Did we get to know each other? And that's probably what your marker should be. And Billy, we'll talk about assessments in a moment because that might look a little different uh, in a specialist setting and require the teacher to do some different tasks around that. Um, But before that, uh, some people make the mistake of when they go into the specialist environment of lowering their expectations. But it is really important, isn't it, to have still have high expectations as a teacher, but have appropriate expectations? Oh, absolutely. It's about appropriate expectations. But like all expectations, you either have them or you don't. And I mean, the thing is, they will be different and they'll be much more uh, child focused in the sense that each child will have, but you've still got to have expectations and this, the kids still want you to be a teacher, right? They want you to behave like a teacher um, and you that's your role. So it's just that, you know, if you walked into a, say a, a group of kids that were 12 year old in a primary school or year seven grade, you might have a um, expectations of what they might be able to achieve in terms of their written work that's going to be different in a specialist school, but you're still going to expect that they do something. Now, it's a bit difficult to d- decide. Look, the one thing, I, I'm not sure um, how this actually works, Ian, but um, if you Google the ABLES, VicEd ABLES, that's a really fantastic um, resource for anyone who wants to get a bit of a grip of, across, one, um, the curriculum, and two, I guess, the markers and even the assessment that happens in those schools. And each kid will be, or the schools that I went to were using, and I I can't imagine they're not now, each kid will have um, an ABLES profile, if you like, which tells you, which is much more specific than you would get in the average primary school. That'll tell you where they're at in that particular, um, you know, whether it's in English or maths or whatever, and and what's next. And the gaps are, are very small, so it's quite specific what you need to do next. So look out for that sort of ABLES profile, not so much if you're there for one day, but if you ask for a two or three week, um, ask the people there, they'll tell you, but just say, what, um, what's the ABLES profile that I need you to be looking at? That? And if you've looked at that before you go in there, it'll give you a bit of an idea of what it is. But no, they definitely have, each kid has an ILP and like anyone that has an ILP, they are all looking to improve. Yeah, look, learning is is just as vital as it is in any other sector. It's, it's very much, uh, I think, personalised and I think, um, it's a matter sometimes with your expectations, just keeping them realistic. They can be high, but they just need to be realistic and they need to be attuned to the environment in which you're working. Yeah. And in terms of assessments, what might assessment look like, how you've recorded the students' uh, work? If you're there over a period of time, the ILP will be crucial because that will be setting some of the goals for the kid, uh, short-term goals and longer-term goals and the ABLES program as well. And, and you don't so much test as observe and collect uh, records of um, achievement and data. And you, you get to know the kids a lot more. There's less in the grade. You can set them. Le- it's less formal, I guess, is the assessment. You're not going to have the uh, end of year spelling test, you know, 
uh, like they might in some of the other um, in mainstream sort of schools. We've had a couple of uh, good questions as well. Jeffrey, we'll get to yours in a, in a moment, but uh, Davinda's just asked um, about how things like yard duty is uh, managed in a specialist environment. Yep, there's more, you'll, uh, there's more people out in the yard um, than you would have in a, a mainstream school. Quite often, uh, as I said before, the yard is segregated into very often um, they will actually have specialist play equipment. So you might have a, a play area that's specifically designed for the younger ones. And because of the size and sometimes the lack of spatial awareness of some of the kids, and quite often the uh, specialist schools are prepped to 10 um, or, you know, so you've got kids that running around that are six years old up to 16 and you definitely don't want those 16 year olds playing footy or running, having their games running through little kids. So quite often the areas are, you know, they'll have quieter areas because some kids like, for example, get have the triggers where it's noisy or if it's rough, that'll set, um, set them off. So there's all sorts of different things that happen in the yard in a specialist school that may not happen in a mainstream school. We have it a bit in, I must ask you, Terry, in secondary schools, do they ever do have areas? I know in primary schools we have areas where only, say, the preps and ones can go. Yeah, do they have anything like that? Particularly for the year sevens, um, yeah. we certainly had a, uh, a designated area Um and I think that was primarily just so kids would feel really comfortable for that first part of the first term. After first term, it's yeah. probably not as relevant, but they could go back to it if they wish. But it was it was more because of just what you've mentioned, that, that traffic issue of um, being around kids who are twice their size. And yeah. uh, it can be easily, uh, it can be physically, it can be really intimidating because they play very, very differently. That's right. Um, yeah, so look, it's it's uh, quite common in a secondary area to maybe have a designated spot at least for the junior kids. Yeah, and so that's you'll you, you'll have that um, doubled if you like in in a uh, not all perhaps, but in a specialist area. That's what they, and they may also even break the uh, the play times and areas up. But of course, you're dealing with um, uh, large, sorry, smaller numbers often larger spaces too, so that's good. And a big consideration for relief teachers, I mean, there might be some people listening to this uh, today who are really keen on uh, trying out some um, specialist education uh, this year. I would definitely advise you to. Uh, there's a couple of things as well that your consultant might ask you. If you give your consultants a call uh, this week or next week and say, uh, I'd really love to try working in a specialist environment and there certainly we can uh, try and arrange that this year um, but there's uh, some major considerations in terms of meals and toileting Billy can you talk to that now most of the time that will be managed by the aides in your average specialist school as opposed to special development with high needs schools toileting and meals are not really an issue one thing that with meals though the kids will uh, I've not been to a special school in fact most primary schools now are the same no eating outside at all. So eating, again, is a um, uh, an activity. And, again, get the information on this. You would, um, perhaps you might know, Terry, but you would know, Ian. Uh, with preps, for example, if um, the average primary school might allow 10 minutes uh, for lunch before the kids go outside, if you had a prep class, you would probably extend that to 20 minutes early in the year. In a specialist setting, same sort of thing. You might think, all right, uh, the kids are going to go outside to play at 12.30. You might be thinking of 
meal times around 12 because you might need to pack things up, go and wash your hands, get settled, have a story. It, it, it's very much about managing them and being aware of their needs and things don't happen really quickly. And if there's a routine around the way they have their lunch, um, which might be we all wash our hands before we have our lunch, um, we all sit with our bags or whatever it is, um, you need to follow that. So again, meals and toileting, you're not probably going to be asked to do anything specific, certainly probably not on your first day anyway. Most of those issues will be handled by the aides who've been trained because around toileting, you've got some um, occupational health and safety issues apart from anything else. But So they're not probably going to be issues you'll encounter. But again, there will be routines around those things. So um, you just need to be aware of what they are. There may be, you know, there may be one particular child with a toileting issue that might have to be accompanied by someone, but there'll probably be someone to help you out with that. But there's also all those little, um, the schools are great at helping you out, but also help yourself out by asking the right question. Uh, certainly a trade wind, uh, we would never send you into a school where you were required to do meals and toileting and we didn't tell you. We will absolutely ask that question before you accept the shift and make you aware of that. The schools that we work with are really good in telling us as well if that's going to be a requirement for the day, Billy. If there's any particularly difficult issues or uh, things that need specific training for, the schools will definitely help you out or they'll manage it themselves. They'll even have things like um, if um, a couple of the kids are difficult or in the grade to play up, they might have a card system where you don't even have, you know, you don't even have to manage the behaviour. If the kid plays up, you send a card to the office and someone specifically trained in managing that child will come and collect him or help you out. So there's there's lots of different protocols and structures which they have to have in place. So you're not likely to find yourself doing something that you've got no either help for or no training for. That said, you do need to be prepared with a, an open mind. There's often situations that just don't exist in mainstream schools like therapeutic pools, um, water therapy, um, certain things that you might be asked to be involved in. So uh, an open mind is is the best asset you could have. Asking quest questions is a really good asset as well. I'd say to the, the Tradewind audience that, um, you know, see this potentially uh, as an opportunity because you may be better suited for a whole range of reasons to working in this sector than you realise. And you may bring a whole range of, uh, you know, life experience and other, you know, other, other skills that you're perhaps not even aware of. Yeah. Look, my favourite story, I told it the other day when we were talking about classroom or behaviour management, you know, I asked them, you know, what would you, you know, what do you want people to come? And they said, yeah, a sense of humour and don't come with that, Mamby pamby, you know, um, bleeding heart sort of. I've got to fix everybody up. That the kids don't want it, the parents don't want it, and the staff certainly don't want it. That's not what you're there for at all. It's to there's a lot of there's a great sense of fun and enjoyment in those schools, and it's not you know if you go in with the deficit model of oh isn't it terrible they're all suffering. But they actually don't want you there doing that. No one wants to live or exist and go to school in that environment where they felt sorry for all the time. That's not the idea at all. It's about getting in and enjoying yourself. And, you know, their games of, um, you know, phys ed and sport, which look a little bit different than what you might say. Those kids love it just as much. As I said, right at the very start, the school photo reminded me of just how much, um, how similar it is to 
what we call mainstream school. You know, no one wants that sort of deficit model all the time. And, you know, as I said, my favourite story is, you know, the lady in the staff room who um, told me, you know, the kids will lose their temper at different times and uh, and the kids swore and said to her, um, you're nothing but a effing fat bitch. And she said, I draw the line at fat. And um, so, you know, that was her way of dealing with it. And just move on. Like she knew that five minutes later that kid would calm down and they'd be best friends again. And that's what you want. You want this, uh, you know, you've got to engage with the kids and smile and enjoy the, your time with them because they, they, are, they really do look to enjoy. They'll want to know who you are and what you're doing there and that they'll love to see you in the school. So you've got to go with that. Ask lots of questions for sure but be prepared to enjoy yourself, you know, great sense of humour. And I, I think that they're, they're the keys to giving it a go. Yeah, it's, I found it a hugely uplifting experience in any time I've worked in a, I've worked in a variety of specialist schools. Uh, it's so, so much fun. In many ways, I, I get frustrated when going back to the mainstream that they don't employ a lot of the brilliant strategies that they do in specialist education that they should be employing in mainstream. We've talked about the words child focused. I mean, why isn't the mainstream more child focused is probably a topic for another webinar. Um, but I think uh, the other real big bonus of working in specialist environments is that you just pick up skills along the way. You know, I certainly learned a little bit of Auslan. I learned a bit of Makaton. Um, these different skills that then when you go back into the mainstream, just put you in such a good standing because you develop a temperament, develop an approach and develop some specific skills um, that you would never have got had you not been exposed to that environment. Oh, absolutely. And again, it's like you've got to be really economical with the words that you use. You can't just get in there and, you know, wrap it on like I do because the kids have got limited vocab and limited. You just can't, you've got to think, right, how am I going to focus this question that's appropriate to that kid so we can keep this communication open and they're going to learn something and if you go if you look at something like bloom's taxonomy most of the kids will operate around the knowledge and the comprehension level and you've got to try to structure all your activities around that you don't want to get too highfalutin and but you've still got to be able to teach them and 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 engage with them and and swap stories and if you get conversation going it's great you know like if they might ask you what's your favorite um, takeaway food and you might say oh it's pizza what's yours and um, what's your favourite way that you do it? And have you ever cooked one at home? You're just going to keep, how can I keep bouncing those questions around? Because as soon as you throw in an inappropriate question and they don't get it, they'll, the conversation will drop away and you've lost a really great opportunity. Whereas if you can keep things moving around the stuff that they know, it's great for them to keep their conversation going. So it does teach you to hone in you know, what you're trying to achieve, which is what really good teaching's about. Yeah, look, what you'll find, Billy, too, is that the skills you pick up are applicable uh, to the mainstream. And I think, um, you know, as has come out of this conversation, you end up, you'll be more effective in mainstream uh, for your experience in this sector, no doubt about it. And just to finish off this webinar, we've just got a couple of questions. Is any specialist uh, training required to work in these schools? Uh, it certainly helps, but no, um, no, you don't. The, all of the specialist schools I've ever spoken to, they've, uh, with regards to CRTs, have said, we just want somebody with a sense of humor, an open mind, and somebody who's willing to fit in with what we do here. Um, that's it. 
uh, go and do it. <laughs> it's easy, easy as that. It's a hard day's work um, and, a, and a steep learning curve, but you feel good at the end of the day, most certainly. And uh, Margaret also just commented as well that uh, there is um, starting to use some of the strategies in mainstream evidence-based practices, differentiation, etc., which is very true, Terry, isn't it? I think for years uh, there's been um, things from uh, specialists which have gone into mainstream. Some have lasted, some haven't. Um, the circle of education. Yeah, look, what I've noticed is that that's those staff who spend time in specialist schools you know, the skill set they bring in terms of working with kids who are challenging in mainstream, Absolutely. I think um, should not be underestimated. Thank you, gentlemen. That is our last session uh, for January. Um, if you do have any friends who are teaching or graduating or looking at relief teaching, if you recommend them to Tradewind, once they work 10 shifts, that's all 10 days, that's it. Uh, you get $200 of Coles Maya vouchers. Please take advantage of, uh, of that. Um, I don't know how long that'll be in existence for, but certainly, um, yeah, a very uh, smart way because you can spend the Coles Meyer voucher in the supermarket. That's where I'd send spend mine. So <laughs> nothing glamorous, but um, yeah, we'll uh, catch you all. And uh, thanks again for attending. And thanks, Billy and Terry. Yeah, thanks, thanks everybody. Thanks, Billy. Thanks, Thank you so much for listening to the Relief Teachers podcast brought to you by Tradewind Australia. Please do share this podcast with anybody who you think might find it useful and do refer to the show notes to record it as part of your professional development hours. If you need any help or support as a relief teacher, please get in touch with us at Tradewind through our website or call us on one 192 195. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time for another episode of Australia's leading relief teaching podcast.